Welcome to Cardboard Conjecture. We're a podcast about board games where we have opinions and conclusions formed on the basis of incomplete information. This episode of Cardboard Conjecture is brought to you by these great Saskatoon businesses. Amazing Stories Comics on 8th Street, Dragon's Den Games on 8th Street, and Breakout Escape Rooms on Faithful Avenue. Hey there! How's it going, Hey, This is What You've Been Playing Wednesday, and this is a special weekly episode where a whole bunch of us board game content creators come together and tell you what we've been playing recently. And on this episode are... Definitely a board game podcast. Mr. Rao Gaming Rants and Reviews. The Meeple Dungeon. Board and Game with Andrew B. The Tabletop Bellhop. Board on the Air. Meeple and the Moose. The Bridge City Board Gamers Community and Cardboard Conjecture. And please, check out the show notes for the links to the What You've Been Playing Wednesday cast, and enjoy! Hi, this is Royce Calverly from Definitely a Board Game Podcast, and I'm here to talk to you about Ten Suns. You are a primordial being drawing power from the ten suns that surround the planet Earth. Everything is happy. You're riding high, invincible on the power of your ten suns. When along comes that nuisance, Hu Yi, a great archer who is going to shoot the suns out of the sky, your power is slowly disappearing, and you need to make alliances with the other gods. You need to build palaces to your glory, and you need to defeat monsters to ensure your reputation. Based on Chinese mythology, Ten Suns is by Dominic Michael H. and Medieval Lords, a game company out of Singapore. Ten Suns is a bidding auction game where each player is blind bidding for several locations, each containing a god, location, or monster, plus a few palace buildings and some lunar energy to use in future bids. Alright, let's start with the positives. The game is great. The blind bidding is fantastic, there's a great catch-up slash timing mechanism that just works really well. The game length is just right. It, it's not too long, it's not too short. The energy resources for bidding is both reasonably plentiful, but also feels tight and difficult to get. The way the first player sets out the palace parts and energy to change the value of the location cards is fun and well-balanced. The order of play is very, very important because you may get to choose to play, where to place those extra pieces if you're first. But you also have to do your powers first, so other players can do their special god powers after to, you know, change your plans. All in all, it's a super fun game. And the amazing part, the best part, is it works really, really well with two players. There's almost no great bidding games for two players. But I did say start with the positive, because there are some negatives. Alright, I'm in my late 40s. Uh, My eyes aren't what they used to be, but they're still pretty good. But in this case, the text size on this cards, the text is just so small on the player screens. Even the rule book has tiny text. And I found myself squinting. I was constantly picking up the card or my screen, holding it right up to my face to try to read the tiny, tiny text. I mentioned the rule book. All right, it's okay. It's not bad. But here's the thing. The game box is quite small. While it's big enough for all the components, it's actually a good fit for everything. 
I feel like the constraints of the game box were taken into account with the rule book. Basically, what I mean by that is they were working to the size of the rule book instead of setting the size of the rule book to the required text. And there are quite a few things that you need to either assume or presume from previous plays of similar kinds of bidding games. For instance, when you bid, if you lose, what happens to the stuff you bid? Do you get it back? Is it gone? Is it lost? It never actually says anywhere what happens to those things. The rulebook could really use some more examples, some clarifications, and it just needs another page or two to really flesh it out. But the worst problem, the worst problem is the cards themselves. They're beautiful. They're really pretty. They have this amazing thematic art, which obviously isn't blocked by the itty bitty teeny tiny writing, so you get to see all the art. The quality of the cards, though, is just awful. I haven't seen cards like this in so long. There's basically no coding, so they feel sticky. Uh, shuffling them is nearly impossible. Even separating them can be a bit of a challenge. They just feel cheap. They let down the entire game. I'm going to have to sleeve mine, and that'll help, but I don't really enjoy playing with sleeve cards, so it's a meh solution at best. So there we have it. Great mechanisms. Great theme crappy components. I can't really recommend you rush out and buy the game because of the components, but if you have a chance to play it, I highly recommend you give it a try. It may just be that bidding game you're looking for, especially with two players. That's Ten Sons. I'm Royce. This is definitely a board game podcast. You can reach us at definitelybored at gmail.com, at boarddefinitely on Twitter, or at definitelybored on Facebook. Until next time, have a great day. Hey folks, Ryan here from Mr. Rouse Gaming Rants and Reviews, and welcome to another week of What You've Been Playing Wednesdays, where this week I'll be chatting about a little game called Baron Park, published in 2017 by Lookout Games, designed by Phil Walker Harding, and illustrated by the oh-so-lovely Clemens Franz. Bear Parks. It's the next best thing. In order to be successful, you must skillfully put, fit together enclosures, animal houses, and green areas and use every available inch of your land. Animal houses and enclosures are worth victory points and are more valuable if you build them very quickly. Construction crews let you claim more land to build onto. When one player fills their park, the game is over and the player with the most points has the best bear park and wins the game. Baron Park has been a very big joy to play with my wife and oldest son in, in the evenings lately. The rule set is not complex, though the rule book makes it seem a little bit more involved than it actually is. On your turn, you simply place a tile from those available in front of you at the beginning of your turn onto your player board. If you cover up some special icons printed on your player board, you gain more tiles of that quote-unquote type. Cover up a wheelbarrow provides you with more basic tiles, and these tiles help you fill in the spaces that other larger tiles don't fit into. Cover-up cement mixers provide you with these bare enclosure tiles that help uh, have victory points associated with them, and these victory points descend in value as more of them are claimed. Excavators allow a player to claim one of the super special bare tiles that are really large and have bigger victory points associated with them. But... The more victory points that that tile is worth means the more awkward it is to fit onto your player board. 
And finally, the construction crew icons allow players to extend their park by adding a new player board to their already existing board. Now, players are racing to completely fill up these boards, and the first person to fill up all four boards will trigger the end of the game. Players are also racing to fill up their individual boards faster than the other players as there are bare statues that are also worth victory points as well and that will go on to this one space that players cannot fill on other tiles. These bare statues are also descend in value as more of them are claimed. Now what I described is the standard game, but the game really comes together really quite nicely when you include the achievement tiles in the quote-unquote expert variant. These add goals to the game for players to work towards in order to score even more victory points if they can meet these particular goals. And, you guessed it, they also descend in victory point totals as more and more of them are claimed. While there isn't a lot to explore in Baron Park, this game is just plain old fun. Players are racing to fill up their boards with these polyominal tiles faster than the others and reaching those illustrious excavator tiles to lay down and claim the more valuable bear statue tiles just feels very good. There is also something to do. There's always something to do and the game does require you to spatially plan out where those tiles are going to go until someone takes the one tile that would make everything work out just fine. Shakes fist at a cloud. It's been fun working with my son on his spatial awareness, and a proud dad moment occurred this week when he claimed a very big eight-point excavator tile, and it fit ever so perfectly onto his board to claim not one, but two bear statues at the same time. It was a huge swing in the game that I wasn't able to predict, and honestly, it was worth it for me to experience. My only negative on this game I have is on some of the game components is that the game does not come with a functional insert. Like, come on, whoever decided to throw in those awkward pieces to try to make an insert should have given their heads a shake. I will definitely be picking up a third-party folded space insert to assist in the setup of this game because it is literally a bear to organize and set up. And that's what I've been playing this week. Be sure to check out my full overview, thoughts, and review of Baron Park over on my YouTube channel. Just search up Mr. Rao's Gaming Rants and Reviews. And if, you like, and if you'd like to, follow my gaming adventures on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search up at Mr. Rao Gaming. That's M-I-S-T-A-R-A-U Gaming. Enjoy the rest of what you've been playing Wednesday, folks. <laughs> Hello, everybody. It's Rob and Anna Marie from the Meeple Dungeon. Hello. And we are back again recording for the Watch Been Playing Wednesdays podcast. And this week we have two games to talk about. What's the first game we're going to talk about, Anna Marie? The first game we're going to talk about is The Crew, The Quest for Planet Nine, designed by Thomas Singh, art by Marco Armbruster, and published by Cosmos. Yeah, The Crew. This is a game that we've had for a long time. We may have even spoken about it before. We, I'm pretty sure we talked about it yeah. early on last year. And um, we're still playing it. Yeah. Because it's, <laughs> it's just a game that we don't get to play very often. But we've been bringing it with us to uh, the brewery uh, every 
week or two or so we get to play uh, a few games of it and we're getting close to finishing it and this is a 50 uh 50 level campaign yes. and we're getting close to finishing it <laughs> but it's it's yeah it's taking us a long time to to do <laughs> but this game is really really good um and this game yeah it takes place on you are on a uh spaceship and you are on the way to search for this uh planet nine planet nine that may or may <laughs> not exist and um yeah it's cool it's a, a cooperative trick-taking game so you you take tricks in this game to simulate doing things on, on your, your ship, ship yeah. basically like the air seal is leaking right exactly so you have to go patch her up and yeah and this game is designed for three to five but it does have a two-player variant that we've been playing the entire yeah. time and it actually works really well so you to to simulate having that third player with the variant it it you put together the uh the ai, AI and it's uh, you build it just with some cards, some seven cards face down and seven cards face up. So it kind of limits you what you're able to take. It's from like that their point. hand. Yeah, it's, it's like their hands hand. and, and you're able to uh, unlock the cards underneath if you play the card on top and so forth. But it's really cool because, yeah, they simulate like, yeah, like broken engines and things. And uh, so say they had four broken engines and you had to take the four different tricks. But the thing about it is you have to take certain tricks by certain people in a, a certain, certain order. order. Yeah. And it is not as easy as it sounds. We we haven't failed many times at this because we really think it out when yeah. we do this. Like we really make every move very careful. Yeah. But it's it's a very tricky game. And it's started. It's getting to that point where it's starting to get more difficult. Yeah. No, yeah. Exactly. The further we go through it, the harder this is getting. They add things in like oh, in this in this hand you can't win a trick with the highest card of of each suit right yeah and so you like, got to try to trash uh, so your it throws you for a loop right yeah. you you're used to carrying and holding on to those high cards in in anticipation of winning tricks with them but you're like oh, I can't even use this card and if yeah. i do if i cuz sometimes you're forced to play that card at your hand right yeah um and you're going to lose right so it's it's so so cool it's so uh innovative and just yeah just it's such a unique game I, I we love trick-taking games and the fact that we can play a campaign game with trick-taking is really good and they have since this one has come out another one has come out that we we haven't tried yet but the crew mission deep sea is sitting here yeah. right beside us waiting for us to play so we really want to get through and finish this one off i've heard a ton of good things about that one yeah, as well and apparently that one's even better yeah um i it, guess it does the same thing but just better in in certain ways i don't really know yeah which is cool because this i mean you don't often get to play trick-taking games with two people (laughs) it doesn't happen right you need to have a table you know four four ish people um for sure typically around teams or whatever or you know but it's so it's neat the way they've been able to make that ai work for a three-player yeah it's cool to see the ai work and it's cool to see theme come through in a trick-taking game like we're talking about those engines like if I believe one of the scenarios is your four engines have died and you've got to take, you've got to fix those engines and you simulate fixing those engines by uh, completing the trick in the proper way. And it's just neat to see how they've, how they've incorporated that. And they, they make you do uh, certain steps in certain ways. And yeah, it's just really, really good. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can obviously put different themes on it. Like the next one is deep sea, but it's neat that they've got the story because you're reading story and then you're playing a scenario. Then you're reading story. Then you're playing a scenario. Yeah. Because they'll, yeah, they give you the little blurb in between like, okay, you've made it through that. Um, That didn't fix as well as we thought it did. So you're going to have to try and fix it again in the next scenario, but with this twist on top of it. Yeah. yeah, It's really, really cool. And so, 
we're close to finishing that one and when we do finish that one we're going to switch over to the crew uh, mission deep sea and yeah we'll carry on playing that down at the brewery <laughs> from from time to time but i don't think we'll be finishing both of the well we'll finish the original here shortly i think in the next <laughs> probably month or two we should have this wrapped up if we're playing it only once every couple weeks yeah <laughs> so um but yeah that's uh, the crew from uh cosmos games but the other game we are going to mention is uh mantis falls this is a game that we've been playing a lot of and it comes from um distant rabbit games and this one is the one game that we did our review on in our last episode episode 32 i believe of the meeple dungeon podcast so if you want to hear all about mantis falls you can go on over to our podcast which you can find on all the major podcasting sites including apple which we figured out we finally figured <laughs> out so yeah uh we're short and sweet this week but yeah if you want to check out our review of mantis falls which is a, a game very of trust. yeah game of trust and it's a very uh, intriguing a two or three player uh hidden, hidden role yeah game. yeah very, hidden very trader. oh it's very neat very if you cool. want to hear about it go on over there it's our our main review of the last uh last episode okay but uh we're what done we, here what are we going to do in our next episode our next, oh yeah, so yeah, our next episode is going to be all a about third game, Merchants <laughs> of the Dark Road, which we have actually set up right in front of us on the table yeah. right now, which we're just learning to play. So, super episode excited. Episode thirty-three of the Meeple Dungeon Podcast will have Merchants of the Dark Road review. Okay, but we're going to run. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll see you next week. Cheers. See ya. Hi, this is Andrew Buckolch of BoardingGame.com, and I'm here to talk about what I've been playing this week. This week, I'm going to talk about The Shores of Tripoli. The Shores of Tripoli was first published in 2020. It's designed by Kevin Bertram and released through his own Fort Circle Games. The art and graphic design comes from Kathy Bach, Mark Rodrigue, and Matthew Wallhead. I talked about The Shores of Tripoli briefly way back on What You've Been Playing Wednesdays number 3, after first trying it out online at the Armchair Dragoons Digital Convention in January 2021. Since then, I've bought a physical copy of the game and enjoyed playing it both in person and online. For online play at the moment, the game is on Vassal, but it also has a very good implementation at Rally the Troops, which is rally-the-troops.com. It's a free site with a few different board games, and its implementation of the Shores of Tripoli works very nicely. Kevin, the designer, has been using that site to host a tournament of the Shores of Tripoli, and that's actually what got me interested in talking about this again. I've been playing several tournament games of this online, and I've also dug out the physical copy and played a solo game this past week, and I wrote that particular play up at my website, BoardingGame.com. The Shores of Tripoli covers the First Barbary War between the United States and Tripolitania, which took place between 1801 and 1805. However, the game can extend as far as 1806. This is a card-driven game where all of the actions you take are either by playing a card for its effect or discarding a card for a basic action. It's for one to two players and it takes about, about 45 to 60 minutes as per Board Game Geek. 
However, once you know the game, it's possible to play even faster than that, especially online. I've had some tournament games that only took around 20 to 30 minutes. It's a game with high asymmetry. The two sides operate very differently. The US starts very slow and is trying to build up its frigates, possibly bring in the Swedish frigates to help, and generally restrict the Tripolitanian Corsair raids. The Tripolitanian player is trying to make those raids as powerful as possible to get to 12 gold, which is their main winning condition, or they can also win by sinking four US frigates or by destroying the US land army. And there's a real arc to this game because as it goes on, the US player starts to get more powerful, become better at intercepting Corsairs, but also build up a land army which is, helps them work towards their victory conditions, either of accomplishing what's necessary to play the Treaty of Peace and Amity or taking Tripoli itself. That treaty is interesting because it's the historical outcome, but it involves three different aspects that the US player has to try and achieve. One is taking the city of Dern. Another is making sure there are no frigates in Tripoli's harbor, which generally often involves a special mission to destroy the one that can show up there after you take Dern. The third condition is making sure that the other nations are at peace. The Tripolitanian player can bring the nations of Morocco, Algiers, and Tunis into the fight with special card play, and then the US has to knock them out again through a couple of cards of their own, or through just moving frigates to those harbors and battling the allied corsairs there. I think The Shores of Tripoli works very well as an introductory war game. It's not that hard to teach, and it explores a lot of important concepts that show up in many other games, especially card-driven games. But the nice thing is that there's still strategic depth here for experienced players, and that was really shown off through some of my plays in this tournament. There's a lot of strategy that goes into both sides, and uh, playing the US in particular can be quite challenging. The game also tells a great story, and it can tell several possible stories depending on what cards come into each player's hand when, and on the outcome of the die rolls. It feels very thematic, and the terrific art, graphic design, and production helps a lot with that as well. And I like The Shores of Tripoli as a solo game quite a bit too. The solo game sees you playing the US player against a Tripolitanian bot, and there's a good level of challenge there without a lot of unnecessary admin running the bot. So if any of this sounds interesting to you, you can check out The Shores of Tripoli. Uh, you can try it online at Rally the Troops, or you can check out the physical game from Fort Circle Games. You can also read more about my solo play of it at BoardingGame.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Andrew Buckholtz, B-U-C-H-O-L-T-Z. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to the Tabletop Bellhop segment of What You've Been Playing Wednesday. I am Mo Tuzano, the Tabletop Bellhop, your cardboard concierge, working with you to make your game nights better. 
If you've got a gaming or game night question for me, send it to questions at tabletopbellhop.com. Visit our webpage and click on Ask the Bellhop, or hit me up on social media where I can be found everywhere as Tabletop Bellhop, one word. Now, since I was last here, I got two games off my pile of shame and played a second Star Wars Unlock adventure with the family. Now, looking at the pile of shame games first, the first of the two was Downfall of Pompeii, a classic Mayfair game. Now, I got a copy of this classic for my birthday this year due to a super low price at Princess Auto, of all places. So, for you fellow Canadians, you may want to check your Princess Auto now and then for bargain basement board games, I guess. Now, this family weight Euro, you're playing through two phases. In the first phase, you're moving people, uh, wooden cylinders, into the growing and bustling city of Pompeii. Then in the second part, uh, the volcano has erupted and you're now rushing to get your people off the map trying to escape from the gates, as well as spreading lava over the map trying to cut off your competitors. Now, the mechanics are simple and easy to learn, and except for the somewhat dark theme, I think this is a fantastic game for families, as long as the kids are old enough to understand what exactly is going on. Now, I had played this game many years ago, but this was my first time playing my own copy of the game, and unfortunately, that first play didn't go well. So at first, it seemed great. I'm playing, it, the, it was coming back to me, it was quick to learn, rule book wasn't bad, I, there was some fiddliness with setting up the cards, but everything seemed to be going really well until we got to the final end of the game. And it ends up we were playing with only two players. And for one, there weren't enough components to play two players, my color of choice, yellow. For some reason, um, Mayfair decided to shortchange people so that depending on your player count, you had to play specific colors, but it didn't mention that anywhere in the rulebook. So that was a little frustrating. So that was strike one. Strike two was the fact that with two players, the map's just too open. And by the time we got to the end of the game, we both tied. We had 30 people each. We placed all 30 people and we had exactly the same number of people escape the city. Then we look up the tiebreaker and it's check who has the least people in the volcano. Well, of course, it's still tied because we both had the same number of people at the beginning. And if the same number of people escape, you're going to end up with the same people in the volcano. So it's got to be the worst tie mechanism I've ever read for a two player game. Um, overall, just don't play this two players. This is not a two player game, despite what it says in the box. It should say three or four players, not two to four players. Now, thankfully, I didn't give up on the game, and I had previously had a good experience with it, and I can tell the mechanics were solid, so we did play a second time last week. Now, this time we played with four, and the game totally redeemed itself. It played so much better with four than two, and actually brought me back to that fun time I had the first time I played it, which I think was at a classic event out in uh, Brimstone Games uh, many moons ago. Now, overall, despite its age, I can solidly say that Downfall of Pompeii is a great game. This is, this is a classic for a reason. Uh, badly needs a new printing. Give me enough components with this new printing, please. But don't play with two players. Have more than two if you ever sit down to play Downfall of Pompeii. Plus, it's more fun when it's not just you versus you and you have multiple people. You get to spread the wealth of throwing people into a volcano. Now, next up was our first play of Ex Libris, which right up, I will say, is fine with two players. So unlike the last game, uh, this was just my wife and I for this first game, and it played excellently. 
Um, I must admit, I found the game a little intimidating. It's got a really thick rule book, but it ends up that most of that rule book is just references for the various different um, buildings, I guess they are, or markets that can come into play. And you don't play with all of those, so you don't need to learn that ahead of time. You can just read them as those markets come into play, which makes the learning curve way um, more shallow, less steep than you'd expect looking at the rule book. Now, this is a fantasy-themed worker placement card game where you're trying to build your own fantasy library. You take on the role of a librarian with their minions, and you're going to different places to buy and sell and trade books, and you have to then arrange them on your shelves. Now, I got this from a friend who was clearing out their collection, and I honestly had no idea what to expect when we sat down to play, and my wife and I really enjoyed it. Like, the theme here is awesome. I love the entire concept of building a fantasy library, and the mechanics all work really well as, as well. Um, I love the way the game starts off with very limited options. There's your own personal worker placement spots, which are buy a book or place a book. And then there's like one market out where you can do this thing where you get extra cards from the deck and that's it. But then every round, two new places come out. And then at the end of the round, one of those stays in play permanently. So the number of worker placement spots grows as the game goes on. I really liked that mechanic. I also liked the asymmetry and the fact that each character had their unique abilities. And there was even a unique meeple for each of them, including one of the coolest meeple I've ever seen, which was a gelatinous cube. Overall, Ex Libris was a surprise hit and one I'm really looking forward to exploring further. If you haven't checked out Ex Libris, I strongly recommend getting a chance to try it. Now, the final game I've got to talk about this week is the Star Wars Unlock Escape Room in a Box game from Space Cowboys. Now, this was another gift that we've been playing through with the family, taking our time with it, playing one uh, one of the adventures in a sitting. Now, there are three in here. Uh, this was our second time playing, so we still have one left after this. And this time we played an unforeseen delay. Which, based on the box cover, I thought was the second adventure, but it ends up it's actually the first adventure. Which it makes sense, because when we played this, I actually found this easier than the first one we played, which surprised me. I'm like, I thought this was supposed to be more difficult. This seems easier. Well, it ends up the image order on the cover of the box doesn't match the order you're meant to play these in. So, lesson learned. And lesson for anyone else out there that picks up the game. This was a really neat one. Um... I don't want to spoil anything, but you're a smuggler trying to escape with your cargo. Um, there's a chance you may be a rather famous smuggler, but it doesn't really say that either way. And you don't really meet a furry friend. So I think you're another smuggler, but someone else who's gotten into debt with a rather well-known hut, is all I will say. Now, this uses the standard unlock system of cards and an app, and it worked really well. Now, I really dig the unlock system. I, I really appreciate the way it works, and I love the fact you don't destroy anything by playing. So once we're done with this game, we could technically replay it, uh, though I, it's not really replayable. Once you solve the puzzle, you solve the puzzles. But we can pass it on to another Star Wars fan, which is fantastic. Now, this particular mission had some really cool stuff. Um, my favorite being a situation where you have to quiz a droid. And that was done extremely well. Like, I, I almost want to replay that part with more people just so they can experience it. Now, my only complaint about this box of three escape room adventures is some flidliness with the app. Uh, twice in our last play, we were penalized for basically using the app incorrectly. Uh, once, I just fat fingered something. And then a second time, hitting a button we didn't mean to hit. This really makes me wish there was a, I didn't mean to do that button in the app because it's so easy to, to misuse it, I guess would be the wrong term. I guess just take your time. But I'm also playing with my kids and I'm handing the kids the app and we're passing my phone around. Um, 
I just wish there was an undo. And yes, I get it. Some people are going to abuse that and they're going to put a wrong code in and then they're going to hit, I didn't mean to do that and put in the right one. But it's a cooperative game. It's not like we're playing for money. It's not a tournament. Just let me back up. And you know what? The people who do cheat and are all proud of getting their perfect score at the end, they know they cheated. So that's it. That's all I've got for this week. Uh, three games, including two off my pile of shame. I, I am slowly, slowly working that down. No, I'm still ashamed at how many games are in that pile. Our piles or fort, my fort of shame. Anyway, before I go, a reminder, visit tabletopbellhop.com. Join us on Wednesdays on Twitch at 9 p.m. Eastern for our live podcast recordings, the result of which you can find on your podcatcher of choice under the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast. For the Tabletop Bellhop, that's me. I am Mo Tuzano, the Tabletop Bellhop. Good day and game on. Hi, I'm David. And I'm Jordan. And we are Board on the Air. And we are a weekly radio show in Saskatoon. And this is What Have You Been Playing? On tonight's show, we are going to talk about... Anno 1800. Yes. This is a... Tech tree in a box. Tech tree in a box would be a good term for it. So the goal of Anno is you have a hand of population cards that you're trying to get rid of. And how you're getting rid of the cards from your hand is by getting resources. Which, you can get these resources from basically what looks like a periodic table sitting right in front of you. Like, you have everything from a penny farthing to lumber. <laughs> there is a lot of resources that you can get in this game. Yeah, the, the goal of the game is to play the cards you start with, and everybody starts with... About 10 cards. is 10 to 12. Nine cards. Nine cards. And every time you add a new worker, you add a new card. Uh, this is the Martin Wallace game uh, from Cosmos. It is a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed this game. Yeah. Uh, on your turn, you're going to take one action, and it's going to move around. So the, the turns are quick. Uh, there is a little bit of AP that can kick in there and it's not really AP it's I need this which needs this which needs this which needs this so there's a lot of reverse engineering going on so a lot of brain power needed oh yeah and then there's also the part where okay I need this I can't build it who has this yeah because you can trade with other people and they can't prevent that trade from happening but they get a bonus they get gold and gold is used for taking your workers back from the uh, goods that you already have. Uh, each good can have two workers on it, uh, and they can fill up if it's a popular good. Yep, because you have five different workers. Like, you yep. have your green workers, your blue workers, your red workers, your purple workers, and then your baby blue workers. Yeah, that, <laughs> in, in fairness to colorblind people, not the greatest pick of colors. Uh, but uh, each resource either requires a different color worker to activate it or when you're creating them you need one of the purple or baby blue workers to create them yeah like the high end like the end game ones that are take basically the entire game to get most yeah. of them out you need the baby blues for yeah and the cards you're completing each give you a bonus action and you can take those at any time during your turn 
Uh, the free actions are taking your workers back. Uh, outside of that, every action is a single action, and you keep keep the keeps the game moving. Yep. Some of the main actions are getting building resource buildings to get your resource production out. You can explore the new world to get more spaces to put buildings on, or you can get resources from the new world, which give you three resources that you can't get anywhere else. But it's a little bit luck of the draw. Yeah, there's about, what did we say, eight of those tiles? Yeah, there's eight of those tiles and six resources that you're looking for. Yeah, and they're rubber, cotton, uh, tobacco. tobacco. I, I forget what the other ones are, but there's stuff that you have to, ex- or that in that age, you had to explore to get. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't readily available in Europe. Yep. Uh I like Martin Wallace games. Uh, I like Rocketman. I really like Brass. Uh, Wildlands is a solid game. It's not completely my style, but I appreciate the design. Yeah. Uh, this is right up there with them. Uh, I would put it close to Brass. Uh, Brass Birmingham is one of my favorite games, so it's not quite at that level. But it is a solid mechanic, solid game through and through. Yeah. Isn't it based on, like, a video game? or? I believe it is based on a video game, which I have never played or researched or seen anything about. Yeah, because the people cards sort of give you that feel of those small objectives where it's like, okay, you need to give them these things, and then they're happy. Yeah. Like in City Builders. Yeah, I don't know. I, I We should have done a little bit of research on what uh, what the video game is, but the board game... Stands alone on its own. Like, I didn't need to know anything that it... I knew it was based on a board game, but it didn't matter to me. And it's a very solid game. It's not like some video game board games where it's like, hmm. Yeah, I I would say, without knowing anything about the the video game itself, is it stands on its own, right? As a solid Euro. Uh, That is Anno 1800. Uh, Big thumbs up from me for this one. Yeah, I really enjoyed it as well. Yeah, and we've played it at two and four players. Yeah. Uh, worked well at both. I I like the interaction of four players uh, where because of those goods, you can only get a couple of them out on the board uh, or there's only a couple of them to get. There was a lot more trading going on. Yeah. So for me, I had a lot of ships going where you didn't. Yeah. So you struggled a little bit in the four-player game. It slowed down for me because I couldn't get my ships out and yeah. I didn't get a level two dock to get those bigger ships early enough. Yeah, it was it was a solid couple hours to play, uh, maybe a little bit longer. It was a little longer, but we were all... Mu- there was two new players. Yeah. Yeah. And we were playing it a little wrong, but... <laughs> yeah, we. there's always that. Okay, I'm David. And I'm Jordan. And we will talk to you next week. Hello, I'm Alex from MeepleInTheMoose.com, and I'm here to talk about the games I played this week for What You've Been Playing Wednesday. This week, I only have one game that I want to talk about. Through the Ages, A New Story of Civilization, designed by Vlada Shavadal and published by CGE. Through the Ages, A New Story of Civilization is the 2015 refresh of 2006's Through the Ages, A Story of Civilization. This is an abstracted take on the civilization-building genre of games, and I feel it does a phenomenal job of imparting the feeling of progress to players. 
In Through the Ages, players are trying to build the best civilization through resource management, developing new technologies, appointing the appropriate leaders, building wonders, and maintaining a strong military and consistent culture production. A failure in any of these areas will be exploited by your opponents. Through the Ages takes players right from the Age of Antiquity all the way up to the modern era. The primary mechanic of Through the Ages is card drafting. Everything in this game is a card that you have to take. Cards flow through a river, cycling at the end of each player's turn. Often, the cards that have been out the longest may get removed from the board, and then all the cards slide all the way down the track, and new ones fill the open slots at the end. The newest cards will cost three actions to take, while the cards that have been on the table for a couple of turns may only, take a, may only cost a single action to take. At the beginning of the game, every civilization has four civil actions and two military actions, and the amount of actions that you get in a turn is mostly dictated by which system of government you have. There are some wonders, leaders, and technologies that can modify this number slightly. Players also begin the game with two farms, producing two, one food each, and two mines, producing one resource each. All of the mechanics of Through the Ages are linked together. If you want to build a new building, you'll need a person or a worker and some resources to build it. If you need more people, you'll need to spend food to bring them into your civilization and pay an upkeep each turn depending on how many workers you have. If you want to discover new technologies, you'll need to earn science. And as I said before, it's important to keep a good balance as any bottleneck will triple your progress. For example, if you are low on food, you want to build a new farm, but if you don't have someone to work the farm, you can't build a new farm no matter how many resources or science points you have. Another aspect to consider is military. While having a strong military presence won't win you any games, it's very easy to lose if you have a weak one. I've found the rule of mutual assured destruction can apply here. If no one has a military, no problem. But as soon as one player starts to arm themselves, everyone starts to get wary and invests in their own military as well. Should you choose to neglect your military, you may find yourself having your resources and or food stolen, your science points stolen, your leaders killed, your wonders destroyed, or your culture siphoned away. I've played through the ages a new story of civilization dozens of times on Board Game Arena and on the app on Android, but I've only played the physical version twice. And this is one of those rare times where the physical version is not my preferred way to play. Sliding cards down the row at the end of every turn and managing all the little pieces representing resources and population can be tedious and accident prone if you have clumsy hands. Adding everything up manually can be a chore, not to mention very easy to forget something. The digital editions of Through the Ages manages all of this for you, leaving you free to engage with the core of this game. I don't necessarily know what qualities makes a game replayable, but Through the Ages is an incredibly replayable game. While you will see all the cards in the game in every single play, the order in which they come out is very consequential. There's a lot of depth in this card game. If you're a fan of civilization building games and you haven't tried Through the Ages yet, you owe it to yourself to give this game a try. That's all I have to say this week. If you want to hear more of my thoughts on other games, check out my reviews over at MeepleInTheMoose.com or follow me on Twitter at MooseMeeple. Have a happy Wednesday. Hey there, Norm here from the Cardboard Conjecture Podcast and Bridge City Board Gamers here in Saskatoon. And what have I been playing this week? Uh, I've been playing a lot of Now or Never, designed by Ryan Laukat and published by Red Raven Games. This is the third in the series, the um, the Arcaria series. I forget what the 
the title is of the of that world building that fantastic world building that uh, that he's done so well so above and below was the first one near and far uh, second one and now or never is the third one and the idea is that a meteorite has slammed into the land uh, people have uh, scattered and now you're trying to um, and the la and that meteorite has created monsters and so on and so forth and uh, you are now trying to uh, prepare the area so that villagers and, and repopulation can happen because if you don't do it, it's now or never, right? There you go. So it is a, uh, uh, it's, it's basically you're trying to re, each person has a, 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 a tableau in front of them of their, of their individual and of the village that they're trying to rebuild. And in rebuilding, you're putting buildings down and you're rescuing villagers from uh, the creatures that have, have uh, I don't know, taken them from uh, or captured them. And these villagers and the buildings are your resource engine because at the end of the game, you're trying to develop as much resource points as you can. In, and also, like a good, uh, like a good Red, Ra Red Raven game, there's a lot of card play, and in the card play, there's three different sets. There's an easy set of quests. There is a uh, set of quests that's related to your mana, which allows you to do like bonus action kind of stuff. And uh, then there is the uh, larger, uh, I don't know what the title is, but it's a, uh, another advanced quest where you make major victory points and to gain victory points, but the conditions to which you have access to these takes a lot of work. And, uh, and the monsters as well. There's, there's such a uh, gradient level of monsters that you can fight for uh, benefits. And like I said, the biggest benefit is the villagers that you need to, at the end of every round, you have a production phase. And that's what, that's what gets you set up for the next phase. Uh, you have specialists. Like all the other games, you have those little villagers and they have things they do and how they benefit you and you can exhaust them. Um, I think I'm going to do, I'm going to start writing up a review for this one. There's, there's a standard mode and a storybook mode and the storybook mode is the choose your own adventure kind of thing. And there's, um, in the standard mode game, there's uh, six seasons and in the storybook mode, those seasons are chapters and it's in those chapters where each individual character has a pre-written choose-your-own-adventure scene. And uh, those are related to on the board when you do search things. So, yeah, I can't wait to get into the storybook part to see how it, uh, it differs from the other two. And uh, I, the other two are fantastic. So I want to see. Now, the first thing I, I, you know, when I was thinking about what I was going to say about this, having a coffee, and uh, this reminds me of Islebound. And if you've not played Islebound before, it is uh, a game, oh man, like maybe eight, no, I was going to say eight years ago, that's a long time. Um, I'd have to look it up, but Islebound was way before this series had started. And um, I think this whole resource exchange system reminds me of that. And Islebound, you're kind of sailing ships to different islands, and you're either aggressively interacting with them or diplomatically interacting with them. And uh, I see 
I see some uh, parallels. So, yeah. So that's what I've been playing. And um, just to have a nice, uh, tight episode, we're going to wrap up right there. And as always, thank you so much for listening to what we have to say. And thank you so much to the content uh, creators who, uh, who, who help with this uh, spectacular weekly special episode. So thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And uh, with that being said, keep your stick on, Jason. Take care out there, eh? <laughs>